Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s, and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives, also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc on YouTube, home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Beth Campbell, Mr. Cheeseball, Joss Hoskinson, Rick Kalacki Jr., Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Time now for a bit of full disclosure, as well as a shout out to a YouTube page. Part of the reason why we chose to devote our first month to the year 1979 was because of a user there named RWDT09, that's capital R, capital D, 09, whose YouTube page is a compilation of TV show title sequences from various decades. One of those videos simply caught my attention, and it was labeled 36 New Shows of the Hellish Mid-Season of 1979, a 37-minute collection of exactly that. All the shows that debuted in the mid-season of 1979, and just how shitty some of these shows looked by title sequence alone. But because we don't want to be the kind to ever judge a book by its cover, we spent the summer looking up these shows to see if any of them had reputations that went beyond shitty book covers. Much to our surprise, as well as the rules that we've long made for ourselves, about 90% of the shows that were featured were either unavailable to watch, a guilty pleasure in our editorial opinion, something that we already reviewed, or decently bland enough that it could never experience our full scrutiny. And I guess the whole point to this preamble here is that the final show we'll be looking at this month is indeed neither of those things. But at the same time, this may be one of those by default selections that we really have no control over. That being said, we wrap up this month with what I can only call Freaky Friday, the TV series. And now. It's the Rex of 79. In Tele-Hell. We mentioned this series of books slash movies slash TV shows a handful of times in other instances. But for the sake of this story, let's talk about Topper a third time. By now, you know the tale of how two well-to-dos get killed in a car accident and are stuck in between mortal planes while helping a man named Cosmo Topper put his life back together a story that made for a successful series of movies that launched Cary Grant's career, as well as a 1950s sitcom of the same name. And also how this one story helped, uh, quote-unquote, inspire two failed 1980s sitcoms, 1983's Jennifer Slept Here and 1989's Nearly Departed. But even though it's the month of October, we're not going to talk about another ghost story. Rather, a few words about the man who originally penned the story. James Thorne Smith Jr. 
or simply Thorne Smith for short, was the man who originally wrote Topper as a series of books in the 1920s, books that turned out to be the most successful out of the 16 that he would write in his short lifetime. To quote directly from the official Thorne Smith website at thornsmith.net, quote, his impact can also be felt in writings of authors as diverse as Robert Bloch, Neil Gaiman, and James Thurber. Perhaps you've seen many of the works influenced by him, such as the cartoons of Beetle Bailey, Sad Sack, and Casper the Friendly Ghost, or the TV shows Bewitched, Mr. Ed, and I Dream of Genie. More recently, you may have felt his touch while enjoying the films Beetlejuice, Ghostbusters, and Night at the Museum. But even if you're a complete newcomer to this creative spirit, you've come to the right place to learn about him and his work." End quote. Also, we kinda feel a little silly for even mentioning this, but no, Thorne Smith is in no way whatsoever related to actress Courtney Thorne Smith. Her mother's last name was Thorne, her father's last name was Smith, the father had nothing to do with the author, and I have no justifiable reason to bring any of this up other than to play this clip. R.I.P. Norm. There's this movie coming out. Yes. Title undetermined at this point. Chairman of the board. Oh, all right. Do something with that, you freak. <laughs> I, I bet the board is spelled B-O-R-E-D. Among some of Smith's other work is a 1931 book called Turnabout that tells the tale of a husband and wife who thinks each other's gender has it better than their counterpart. Both husband and wife's notions are put to the test when, thanks to the purchase of an ancient Egyptian statue, the husband's spirit is placed inside the wife's and vice versa. Coincidentally, one of many movies and TV shows that have used this narrative device since the original book was published in 1931. So what's one more adaptation going to hurt? Question is, who would be willing to do the adapting? There have been many figures in the world of television that we heap a lot of praise on around here, in spite of the flaws that they had at various points in their respective careers. And now, here's another one. You know, I don't trust myself and I don't trust any writer to just sort of wing it. I think until you know what, what the skeletal structure of a story is, you can't you can't write it properly. The late Stephen Bochco perennially belongs on many top 10 lists of all-time great TV show creators. Born the son of parents who were artists in their own fields, Bochco spent his formative years studying and eventually gaining a BFA degree at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. From there, the young man went west to seek out his fortune as a TV writer. Bochco hit the ground running when he found work with Universal Studios, penning episodes of classics like Columbo, Ironside, Macmillan and Wife, and many others. Bochco would later parlay his TV success into co-writing the screenplays to several action movies, including The Counterfeit Killer, Silent Running, and a remake of Double Indemnity. Eventually, Bochco solidified his status as a top writer of dramas and crime shows, Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, and the list goes on. And Bochco would continue to do so until his passing from leukemia in 2018. But writing for dramas and action shows are one thing. The real mark of just how creative a creative type can be would lie in just how much versatility that person was willing to showcase. Simply put, in 1979, Hollywood's up-and-coming dramatist would try his hand at lighthearted comedy. 
as he and another TV writer named Michael Rhodes would team up with executive producer and sitcom veteran Sam Denoff to possibly do for Thorne Smith's legacy what Topper and its various producers did for it years earlier. Now all they had to do was cast the two poor souls who were about to get their souls switched up. Enter our returning champion, John Shook. What's in the box? I don't know. What's in the box? I don't know. What's in the box? I just work here. What's in the box? Okay, get off my back. What's in the box? Automobile box. What's in the box? I just told you. What's in the coconut? Although his biggest claim to fame by that point in his career was as the robotic lead on 1976's Holmes and Yo-Yo, the experience didn't deter Shook from continuing to be one of Hollywood's most durable character actors. In fact, it was during the production of Holmes that he continued his semi-regular work as Lieutenant Charles Enright on Macmillan and Wife, as well as continuing to do guest star work on a handful of other TV shows and movies. So thankfully, one failure did not derail the man. Shook would be cast as Sam Alston, a sports writer, which is a slight contrast from the 1931 book when the man is named Tim Willows and works in advertising. But I suppose the change had to be made to appeal to a modern 1970s audience. I mean, <laughs> who would ever watch a TV show about advertising men on Madison Avenue, he said before putting in something contradictory. As for his better half, another showbiz veteran was cast to play Sam's wife, Penny, aka Sally in the book version. She wouldn't know it yet, but a few years after this show aired, she would wind up one half of a pair of detectives who cleaned up New York in their own way on a show with, quite honestly, one of my personal favorite TV theme songs ever. Before she landed the role of Detective Chris Cagney, Sharon Gless had already been in the business for roughly 10 years when Turnabout came about, already logging guest appearances and regular roles on shows like Marcus Welby, M.D., Owen Marshall, and The Rockford Files, among others, culminating, at the time, with a regular role on the Robert Wagner, Eddie Albert detective series, Switch. Both Gless and Shook were now pronounced husband and wife in the series. And now that the casting was complete, all they needed was a network to pitch it to. Which brings us, unfortunately, to the insurmountable fact that some subjects are just too friggin' hard to avoid around here. I swear for the rest of this season, our subjects will be 100% Silverman free. But for the sake of continuity, we must remind everybody that our patron saint's arrival at the Trapezoid End played a big factor as to why over 40 TV shows debuted across all the networks in 1979. Everybody knew what he was capable of. Everybody tried to outdo him in programming. Everybody, including the man himself. By the time he made his way to NBC a year earlier, he was the subject of a Time Magazine cover story which gave him the nickname of The Man with the Golden Gut, a nickname that, later on in his life, Silverman would actually despise. As it would turn out in interviews late in his life, the nickname applied too much pressure on what was already a high-intensity business. And sure enough, that same pressure led to his first year as network president of NBC being equal parts transformative and chaotic. 
So much so that his first act as president in January 1978 was to cancel all of his predecessors' existing shows regardless of how they were doing in the ratings, and replace them with shows that he would greenlight personally. Or, as a dramatized version of him would state in a comedy sketch about a year later, I can't believe that I had to cancel nine shows! And they were terrible shows! I don't understand how they failed. Simply put, NBC's efforts for the fall of 78 were so dire that it was up to the mid-season replacements of 1979 to help pick up the slack. Realizing that the network needed to have some content to put on each night, or they might as well give primetime back to the local affiliates, that's more or less why NBC picked up this show as well. The old let's see what will stick against the wall excuse. Of course, as we mentioned back in the Animal House ripoff shows, NBC was also in a unique position for 1979. For it was their year to not only broadcast a big football game, but to use the oversized audience from that game to help hype up all their mid-season hopes. This show was no exception, and considering how all the other shows that aired on the network that year turned out, we pretty much know what this one's fate is going to be. But does that mean the show itself was bad, or was it simply the victim of equal parts bad luck and timing? As the old saying goes, turnabout is fair play, and we'll try to be as fair as we can after the break. Sid? Sid? Sid! What? Honey, hand me my antiperspirant. Here. Oh, Sid. Uh, Sid, this is your antiperspirant. Hand me my secret. Oh, for crying out loud, two antiperspirants. Why do we have to have two antiperspirants anyway? Can't you use mine? No, because I never know what you're going to bring home next. So? So, secret strong. And it's made for women. Secret strong? Mm-hmm. Really helps stop wetness. Boy, it works for me. Okay. If it's strong, let's both use it. But I told you, secrets for women. Smells pretty, see? Mmm, does smell nice. Yeah, doesn't make me smell like one of the boys. Uh-huh, but we can still share. Huh? Well, as long as it's strong. Uh, sorry, darling. Secret. Strong enough for a man, but made for a woman. Sue, have I ever told you how much I love you? Oh, Sid. Even if I can't use your secret? <laughs> this week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. At impact, a small hole was punctured in the tank. According to our experts, the pressure of the collision and the crushing of the gas tank forced gasoline to spew from the gas cap. The fuel then erupted into flames when ignited by the impacting car's headlight. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast now at new low prices and now back to this week's torture january 26th 1979 we already used this historical information when setting up the animal house ripoff show brothers and sisters so feel free to listen to that one again and at 9 p.m 8 p.m central we must first make a quick digression about TV title sequences before going into the show itself. 
but for a good reason. As we've mentioned in the past, we sort of have this running theory that a bad show can actually be determined whether or not their title sequence is actually entertaining. And for the most part, this one is. At the same time, it's hard to imagine in this day and age because of just how short both they and the attention spans of people watching them are. But once upon a time, a TV show's title sequence was more than just a catchy 30 to 60 second tune. On some occasions, they would flat out tell you the plot of the show. And this was done for one of two reasons. Either to bring new viewers up to speed on what the show is about if they're tuning in for the first time, or, if you're a pessimist, alert you as to how contrived the show you're about to watch may be. In the case of this show, the jury is out for the time being. So for now, why don't we let, and I'm not kidding here, the OG Winnie the Pooh himself, Sterling Holloway, tell us the story. Upon a time, in a very nice city, in a very nice house, there lived a very nice man and a very nice woman. They were married to each other and they loved each other very much. They not only loved each other, they also liked each other. But even though they loved each other and liked each other, they sometimes were not very happy. They envied each other. They each thought the other one had a more interesting life, and they wished they could change places with each other. And they said that. Unfortunately, they said it in front of a statue that had a magic spell. And lo and behold, his spirit and personality went into her body, and hers went into his. And that's the way they are today. Will they live happier ever after? Act 1 begins with our happy couple on their way to wherever point B is. Hey, what is the matter with you today? I don't know. I'm depressed. About what? I don't know. It's the same feeling I had as a kid on Sunday. I knew tomorrow was going to be school. Gee, that's because you never did your homework. Oh, yes, I did. But it was always wrong. <laughs> oh, I know what you need. So, typical husband and wife sitcom banter. Nothing special there. Though, I will repeat once again, there is a time and a place for a laugh track. And the answer to both of those questions is... Episode 17. As Sam and Penny drive past a nearby roadside collection of various oddities for sale, one of those oddities piques her interest. Forty dollars. Forty dollars? Hey, it comes with a legend. The ancients say that under certain conditions, the owner of that statue will be granted a wish. What are the conditions? When the sun, the moon, and the stars are at one with the hearts of the believers, the legend will come true. Now, what is that supposed to mean? That part's a little fuzzy. Well, I don't pay 40 bucks for fuzz. So now, to save us a couple of steps, because the overall plot to the show has been mentioned here not once, but twice, let's cut to the chase. After a lengthy period of argument about how the other half lives, the magic words are spoken, and both hilarity and bedridden interpretive dance ensues. Take my word for it when you see it in the episode trailer on YouTube later. I wish we could change places with each other. And grand reveal in three... Two. Hallucinating. I've lost my mind. Olive, 
What I'm saying is true. That's not all you've lost. And were this a sane world that we live in, the answer to this problem would simply be to unwish the wish. But what fun would that be? Last night, didn't you say you wish we could change places? Sam, what are you talking about? That statue is what I'm talking about with its legend and all that junk. I told you not to buy that thing. Sam, don't. What if it is true? He's our only hope. So, with seemingly little recourse, Sam and Penny are just going to have to live their lives with the switches that were made, starting with litmus test number one, Penny and Sam's body trying to have a conversation with his boss. Sam, are you all right? Well, I'm not really myself today. Sam, I got us an exclusive interview with Randy Hogan. You're writing the articles. Don't meet us in my office tomorrow morning. And Sam... You'd better stop drinking on weekends. And then there is also the issue of just how the two of them will appear to others with their swapped souls. I.e., does the man wear women's clothing? Does the woman wear a man's suit in spite of how sexy that is to me? Don't kink shame me. I think a woman in a men's suit is hot. How do I look? You look like Bozo the Clown. What are you doing to my toe? I'm painting my nails. <laughs> It's clear polish. No one will see them. Then why paint them? Sam, my love, my body may look like a fella, but up here, I'm all woman. Well, then paint your head! And so, the grand experiment begins. What will life be like for two people of the opposite sex to live life in each other's bodies? Litmus test number two, what will the neighbors think? Hiya, beautiful! Hi! <laughs> Seems like a pretty normal reaction to me. But perhaps a little too normal. Show him how it's done, Mrs. Kravitz. Anya! 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 Yes, my love? Tabitha Stevens just made a newspaper fly through the air like it had wings. Do you know what that proves? Mm-hmm. News travels fast. Act two begins with the swapped spouses at each other's workplaces. Ladies first, as future detective Cagney deals with the important decisions at a cosmetic company. Come over here, Penny, for the Christmas ad. Now, which one do you like? Uh, the red one? <laughs> Both red. <laughs> we haven't used the word red around here for 15 years. So, which one do you like best, the pomegranate or the cranberry? I, I like the, uh, the pomegranate. Oh, I thought you'd pick the cranberry. I should. <laughs> a little confused. Truth be told, I would have picked cranberry. But only because something needs to put pumpkin spice in its place as the one true flavor for fall. Come at me, see what happens. Come on. But there are more pressing matters to worry about. Namely, inner office fooling around. We spend more time together than I do with my wife or you do with him. Him? Ben. Max, whatever his name is. I really don't want to talk about this right now. I understand. And when you do, it will be our little secret. Ah! Meanwhile, over at Sam's office, Penny in Sam's body tries to be inconspicuous. Thankfully, a lowly mailroom boy is the perfect way to do that. You know where my office is. <laughs> yes, sir. Right at the end of the corridor. Good. And do you know where Mr. Brennan's office is? Of course, sir. It's uh, 
Right in there. Excellent. You know, you have a good head on your shoulders. Is there any mail in there that's for me? You can keep the stamps for your collection. Of course, it's easy to pull the wool over the eyes of a young and innocent. That's kind of a core part of Hell's training manual. How would Pennyman fare against Sam's boss? I brought along that big Shirley you told me about. Boy, have you got some wild friends. <laughs> Where is Randy Hagen? Hogan. He's at the club. We're going to meet him in the steam room at 10. <laughs> steam room? And so, in a gag that even Ray Charles would see coming from miles away, Penny a la Sam is trapped in a steam room with other men and trying to play things cool as a woman trapped inside a man's body could get. And cue the obligatory sexual confusion jokes. I think I may die. Please, God, make it a heart attack. Maybe it'll be over fast. Sam, don't you think Randy has the best pair of hands in football? I hadn't noticed. And I'll be honest, I've got nothing. Like, the scene itself is not a bad one or even an offensive one, and... I guess you could say that for the whole show itself, but as we stated in our 1979 prologue, many of the shows that premiered that year were victims of what we call the three C's, in that they were crass, contrived, and copycats of existing successes. That scene, to me, was the embodiment of all three of them. It was crass in that a show about body swapping would stoop to such an obvious set of jokes for a cheap laugh or two, contrived because I'm all but certain that in the hundreds of years that body swap stories have been taking place, I'm sure that joke has been done several hundreds of times, and not one of them adds anything new to it, and a copycat because see the first two C's. And it's any wonder why TV in the 80s would later put in an effort to make actual strides for quality. I mean, we've ribbed on Fred Silverman in the past for the mistakes that he made at NBC, but even he had to realize something was wrong here and... Oh, uh, hold on. Somebody's tweeting at us even though this is not a live show. Let me see here. Okay, an anonymous tweeter says, Silverman may have greenlit the show, but he wasn't the one who pitched it to him. Didn't you mention in your Jennifer Slept Here episode that somebody else was responsible? And let's see, there's a video clip attached to this tweet. you're wondering, I'm Brandon Tartikoff, president of NBC Entertainment. Come again? Uh, hold on, go back to the Jennifer Slept Here episode. Just play a part of that back, please. Here's a partial list of shows that Tartikoff may have lent a hand in helping get on the air. On Turnabout, a little magic made Penny and Sam switch bodies. I am in your body and you're in mine. I think I may die. Shit. I really gotta start paying attention to my own shows. Well, moving on. The couple recaps their respective days. Well, how'd it go? Oh, fine. Except when I fainted in the steam room. You fainted? My towel fell off. What about you? It was awful. I was in torture all day. What happened? I had to go to the bathroom, and I didn't know which room to go to. So we're just gonna gloss over the fact that somebody's sexually harassing Penny and that apparently it's been going on for years and Sam had to find that out firsthand? That, that's not a human resources-sized elephant in the room that needs to be tranquilized? Anybody? 
Oh, well. Anniversary party! Hold it in any longer. I have to ask. Are you having an affair with Jeffrey St. James? Of course not. Why? The jerk made a pass at me. What happened? I bit him. Damn, you can't go around biting every man who makes a pass at you. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, I should really start watching these shows ahead of time. Well, as long as we're on the subject, who's Big Shirley? She's just a name somebody gave me and I passed it along. I swear, honey, as long as we've been together, I've not so much as touched another woman. <laughs> and not unlike another popular sitcom of the time, everything ultimately amounts to a big misunderstanding, at least between the two of them. Trying to keep up appearances with the neighbors is another story. Hello? Hiya, neighbors. Sorry we're late. Well, you're the one who said you knew what every day was going to be like. You wanted excitement. You got excitement. Excitement is one thing. Eventually, the two of them come to terms with the fact that they might be stuck like this forever. You know, we're going to have to start doing our homework. I mean, if we're going to be living in each other's bodies, we're going to have to start behaving like each other. You're right. And it really wasn't fair of me to jump at you like that. It's okay. Listen, uh, as long as we survive the first day, what do you say we, uh... I guess this means that they're just going to have to deal with the unusual hand that they've been dealt. Or at least for the seven episodes that this show was going to run, because, let's face it, it was no match up against CBS's up-and-coming powerhouse of a Friday night lineup. I mean, this show was on opposite the Dukes of Hazard. That'd be like pitting a Sherman tank up against a pea shooter. But still, to be stuck in another person's body with zero resolution seems pretty hollow. That is, until 1981, when, for some reason, either because the network was still in dire straits for content to put on, or possibly as a Hail Mary from the hands of Brandon Tartikoff, who just took over as NBC Entertainment President by that point, they decided to take four episodes from this series and cobble them together into a goddamn TV movie. Given the creative title of The Magic Statue, this was pretty much four episodes of Turnabout taken apart and pieced together like Frankenstein's monster in an effort to close the book on a story that many people thought was going to be thrown out forever. Obviously, they used the pilot, but also an episode called Penny's Old Boyfriend, where Penny's old boyfriend shows up with a job offer that Penny hopes Sam won't refuse now that he literally speaks for her. Sam suspects that the ex-boyfriend is more interested in Penny than the business, and he's in a perfect position to find out, let's say. Next episode, Till Dad Do Us Part, where Penny's family comes to visit on the occasion of her sister's wedding, and the masculine-minded Sam has to be the daughter-slash-sister instead of Penny, much to Sam's annoyance and Penny's disappointment. And the final episode, Statutory Theft, where the magical statue is stolen and Sam and Penny may be cursed to stay in each other's bodies forever. So with that, we're just gonna skip ahead to the ending where after a two-year-long wait, the two of them get the happily ever after that they deserve. I wish we were back in our own bodies again. Oh, I wish we were back in our own bodies again. And through the magic of reversing the footage from the pilot, we get exactly what 
dozens of viewers were hoping would happen since 1979. The souls would get switched back, Sam can pee standing up again, and we all lived contrivantly ever after. Good luck. Good luck, my friend. Oh, and the uh, statue can talk too now, apparently. Which I'm sure they also added for padding purposes because it didn't talk during the original show's run, but... Who cares? The story has now been fully told, and it took a whole two years to tack on this ending. Wasn't it a fantastic dream? It was too ghastly and real. What are you thinking about? Well, Penny, don't you feel the cold? The only cold I feel is the one from your heart. Yeah, what is the matter with you? Tell me. I don't know. I'm confused. About us? I don't know. It's that silly fantasy we had. I can't help feeling it was more than just a nightmare we shared. That's because you have a hangover. No, it's much more. It's that sneering statue that haunts me. <laughs> well, I know what you need. Another drink? At home with me. Let's hurry home. <laughs> Penny, I love you. You're some woman. I love you, too. You're some man. If there's anything that I can't stand more than a bad TV show, it's a mediocre one. I mean, at least with bad TV shows, the flaws are easy to find. But for a show like this, not only are the flaws more nuanced, but it makes sitting through mediocrity more of a chore than meets the eye, as we'll explain in the Nine Circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. First things first, there's a fine line between a ripoff and an adaptation. For the sake of our subject, Wikipedia lists several hundred different books, TV shows, movies, and other forms of media that have contributed their own version of a body-swapping story to the annals of time, all of which stem from an essay written by John Locke, written in the late 17th century called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and in particular, a chapter written on personal identity. Among the adaptations is a book from 1882 called Vice Versa. From the book spawned a stage production in 1883, a BBC radio series in 1947, and three different movies with the same title and overall premise, but different settings each time. We bring this up because Thorne Smith's Turnabout book was written in 1931, and while the overall premise was pretty much the same to the practically hundreds and hundreds of different versions of what is pretty much the same story before and since, this show at least tries to do its own thing, but it's still different enough so that there were no legal hurdles to jump over. So, while we won't be ringing the bell for fraud in terms of how this is probably number 246 in a long line of adaptations, I will still ring it for fraud on account of the fact that they chopped up half the series and tacked on a new ending for the sake of filling up a schedule two years after this show was supposed to be long forgotten. Overall, however, it doesn't change the fact that this show and the TV movie not only veers a bit from Thorne Smith's story, but it also veers very far from John Locke's teachings for the sake of entertainment, putting it on the spot for heresy. But then you get to the content of the show itself. When you try to appeal to the lowest common denominator, sometimes you have to go fast and easy to get there. In this case, thanks to all the gender-swapping jokes that are made, jokes of a lustful nature is such low-hanging fruit that you could practically kick it off the ground. Otherwise, it was a mediocre show with a mediocre story that's been done countless times before and since. And for a show this banal, forgive me if my efforts in reviewing this one are on an even playing field. The show just felt 
meh to me. Turnabout earns three out of nine circles of telehell. And so concludes The Rex of 79. If there's a show that was even worse than the ones that we covered that came out during this particular year that you thought we should have covered, well, have I mentioned that I'm here for all of eternity? There will be time down the line, I promise. I kind of have no say in that. And I wish we could have ended this miniseries with more of a bang instead of a whimper. But then again, maybe it's a fitting ending considering the year itself represented the fizzling out of one era and the start of a new one. And a happy 1979! By the end of the 1970s, people were becoming weary of how things were in the world. In this year alone, there was the Iranian hostage crisis, the gas shortage, the disco demolition, the malaise of the Carter administration, and a number of other factors where the world at large wanted something more positive to look forward to in the next decade. The next two decades largely delivered on major turnarounds, not just geopolitically, but in terms of quality control for entertainment. TV shows of the 80s and much of the 90s were the kind of water cooler appointment viewing that revitalized the entertainment industry. But for every positive swing in one direction, the pendulum inevitably had to swing back the other way. And folks, the channel-surfing season of Telehell has just begun. And we've got a lot of channels to surf through. Next time on Telehell, the next two channels we're going to surf are ones that we have long neglected around here. Until now. And we start November with probably the biggest case of don't judge a book by its cover that we've ever seen. Homeboys, prepare for takeoff. Not that kind, this kind. All nude homeboys. Back to back with Moesha, all new UPN Tuesday. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Telehell will return on November 6th, 2022. Until then, continue to follow us on our socials at Telehell Podcast. Also, if you want to hear our premium content and pick up some swag on the way, become a patron at patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. But more importantly, give us a few kind words. Like, rate, comment, send this show to other people like it's a chain letter, whatever. The important thing is, let us know how we're doing. You'll find us wherever you stream podcasts just by Googling Telehell Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.